The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like if you would take your Bibles and open them to Hebrews chapter 9. And I, I want to begin by reading the first four verses of this chapter. And this is the, the author's reference to the, to the floor plan of the Old Testament tabernacle. This is Hebrews chapter 9. And, uh, well, I said verses, what I say, first four verses. Um, let's, let's talk about the fifth verse too, because that will be part of, uh, part of the message tonight. So, Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 1. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances, a divine service, and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, and the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now there we see that the author of Hebrews said that he couldn't speak particularly about the mercy seat. But with his permission, I can because I have time to talk about that tonight. We're going to spend some time talking about it. Uh, the author of Hebrews didn't stop to dwell on the meaning of the mercy seat, because he was very, moving very quickly on with his, uh, his explanation of Christ's work concerning atonement and how that Christ perfectly fulfilled Old Testament types. And his emphasis in Hebrews is mostly, or this section of Hebrews was mostly on his blood, on his death, and on that sacrifice, telling us that Christ's sacrifice did what Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do, and that is that Christ's blood takes away sin forever, while Old Testament sacrifices were just a temporary covering until that final sacrifice of Christ was made. So the Old Testament sacrifices were a show. Uh, you might say that they were theater, they were acting out the real event. And, and interestingly here in verse number 13, if we go on reading, he says that those sacrifices accomplished God's requirement of purification, but then he added to that, they could only satisfy for a time, for a brief time. And so if the blood of a common animal could satisfy God for a time, he says, how much more? Can the precious blood of the sinless Son of God meet God's requirements? That it will purge the worthless sins, the, the awful sins, the, the conscience of a worthless sinner and make his works acceptable to God. Now the sprinkling of the blood atonement was made in a specific part of the tabernacle, a part that was visited only one day each year. So on the on the Day of Atonement, in the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar, the Hebrew would take, the, the priest that is, would, would take the blood behind the veil of the most holy place, and there he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where he made national atonement. 
Now, in last week's message, I mentioned just briefly the inside furnishings of the tabernacle. That's what we were reading there in those first verses of chapter 9. And uh, we also talked about that, that small room where the priest took the blood on the holiest day. And I'll refer you to that sermon for more explanation of those parts and some of the things that you'll hear tonight. So we moved on from that to speak of the symbolism that was involved. And the mercy seat was the center of discussion. And getting into that mercy seat, the requirements of how the priest would approach the mercy seat is where we left off in the last message. So first in our outline, this is what we were talking about, and that was the approach of worship. And the emphasis on the high priest in worship taught us that his work was singular on the Day of Atonement. Only he is allowed to go into the most holy place, and there he was the mediator between the people of Israel, that's Israel, and and between him, them and God. And in this, the, the priest represented Christ, who is the only mediator that we have between God and man. Hebrews refers to Christ as our great high priest. And by it says, by his blood, he made satisfaction for our sins. And then Hebrews says that Christ has an unchangeable priesthood. And you can read that in chapter 7 and verse number 24. So Christ is a priest that is unlike Israel's priest because he didn't have to offer first for his own sins. He didn't have any. any. Uh, he didn't have to offer for his sins before he could make atonement as the Old Testament priest did because Christ was separate from sinners. He was holy and harmless and undefiled and higher than the heavens above. Now, the priest then would enter the tabernacle through a, through a curtain on the east end of the, of the tabernacle, and that served as a door to the first compartment that is called the holy place. And then he would proceed westward to the other end, and he would pass the golden lampstand that was on his left and the table of showbread on his right. And in front of him, directly in front of him, was a curtain that separated that compartment of the tabernacle from the last compartment or the second compartment. And in front of that, that uh, curtain that was hanging there, there's an altar of incense. So the priest would then go inward to the, to the tabernacle. He'd go through that first entering in. Then he would go to the second. And there he would pass away that veil, which, which revealed to him that second comp- compartment that is called the most holy place. That room was a room that was 15 feet cube, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. And if you were to ask, why was that a perfect cube? I hope the answer would be easy for you. Those three equal dimensions speak of God as a holy trinity. Now, the trinity is taught in various aspects throughout the tabernacle. But even though the Bible does teach us that there is a trinity, the tabernacle was not specifically concerned with that, with that teaching that there is a trinity, that God is a trinity, but rather it focused on the second person of the Godhead who is featured as the reason for the tabernacle's construction. That focus, of course, is the second person. That is, that is Jesus Christ. And he isn't the focus because he supersedes all other persons in the Godhead. No, the Trinity teaches us that all of the Godhead is equal. They're equal in power and in authority. 
But despite that teaching of the Trinity, there are some who teach that Jesus is the primary person of the Trinity, or he's the one that we pay attention to, that Jesus is closer to us because he's the one that's on our side, and he acts as a calming influence on the Father. The Father's only concerned about sin. The Father is angry all the time. The Father is a taskmaster who never met a creature that he didn't want to punish. But Christ is the one who is tolerant. Christ is the one who's willing to give us a break on our sin. And he calms the, the anger of the Heavenly Father. Then on the other hand, you have charismatics who will barely mention Christ because their focus is on the Holy Spirit. Christ's work means very little to them because they love to deal in supernatural gifts. They love to magnify the Spirit. But when we come to the tabernacle, we see both of those viewpoints of the Father and the Holy Spirit are shut down by the types that we find here because the Holy Spirit's work is to focus on the work of Jesus Christ. That He shines the spotlight on Christ and what He did on the cross and the Holy Spirit's there, of course, in, in types and figures of the Old Testament. God the Father is there in the types and the figures. But you would never see God as being cruel. Not God the Father is not being cruel in, in, the, uh, in the teachings of the tabernacle. But rather, we see from God the Father uh, a God who is not desiring the death of the sinner... That he's not there just to punish people, but in his love and his mercy, he's the one that sent Jesus Christ, his own son, to die for our sins, to redeem us. Now the focus, though, in the tabernacle is Christ in the Godhead because he is the appointed one. He is the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. He is the anointed one who came to act out the eternal plan of redemption for fallen man. So he is the one that brings us to the Father. He reconciles us through the sacrifice of his blood. He came to dwell with us and to die for us to accomplish salvation. And that's the reason we are best acquainted with Jesus. He's the story of the Bible, the focus of the Bible. And that's why we're best acquainted with him. So the priest then acts as a shadow of Christ. And he continued to do these various rituals year after year to picture the work that Christ would do. And he entered the most holy place through the veil that's also typical of Christ. Now the approach to worship in God's presence is only through that veil which stood for the body of Christ. So this teaches in worship, and this is the point that we dealt uh, with last week, that we are to approach God through the body of Christ. Now, if you turn the page uh, to the 10th chapter, the author continues making spiritual analogies corresponding to physical components. And so he says in verse number 19 of the 10th chapter, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Now, we're dealing in this particular point with that last phrase, that the veil represents his flesh. And behind the veil, there is the mercy seat. And so we learn to approach the veil only through the, uh, approach the mercy seat, rather, only through the veil. And that veil represents the body of Jesus. And of course, this would be his body as the incarnate Son of God. And the incarnation was necessary in order that he would have a body prepared for sacrifice. 
Now, if you look at verses 8 through 10 in chapter 10, you'll see that. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now those sacrifices of the law couldn't satisfy God forever. And so the Son came to do away with all of those sacrifices and to establish a better one that would satisfy God forever. And this is, this is typical of what we learn throughout tab, the tabernacle study, that all of these parts, all of these other, all these things that go on here are just a marvelous exposition of Christ's work. But here we are focusing, for now, on Christ's body. The error of Gnosticism, and particularly its form called Docetism, in the early centuries of the church, attempted to do away with the importance of Christ's body of flesh. Now, we've learned in other studies, particularly in, in 1 John, because this is a, a very important part of 1 John, that the Gnostics, the Docetists of that time, didn't believe that Jesus had a real body. They were convinced by Hellenistic culture that the body was sinful. And so Jesus only appeared to have a body. It was, it was an illusion. And if he did possess a body, it was only for a very brief time, and that would be during the time of the sacrifice. But their beliefs had the unfortunate result of ruining types, the types of the tabernacle and thus rendering the book of Hebrews meaningless. We would need Hebrews if what they said was true. If they're right, then they destroy the only means of approach to God. And this is what the author of Hebrews is laboring with us to establish in this ninth chapter, that we can only come to God through that sacrifice of Christ. And that reminds us of how careful we have to be about the doctrine that we teach. There are some errors that are too serious to overcome. There are some errors that destroy the faith. Now, you already know how I feel about that concerning doctrines of grace, so I'm not going to touch that again. But the New Testament book of Hebrews explained what Old Testament Hebrews didn't understand. It helped put all these pieces together. And here in the New Testament, we learn that that veil that the Hebrews didn't understand represents that flesh of the Son of God. And so that's one of the mysteries of the Old Testament that eyes had not seen, neither had entered into the heart of man, as 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 explains. Now going back to chapter 9, uh, there is a verse that I, that I told you that we would attempt to make clearer in our understanding. And this is verse number 12, Hebrews 9 verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, as I mentioned, I think, the last time, I said we would expect that this verse would say that he entered into the most holy place with his blood, because that's what the priest did. Uh, of course, the priest had to go through the holy place first. He had to traverse that part of it. That was before he entered the most holy place. But it seems in, in this ninth chapter that the most holy place is, is central to the discussion. That that's, that's the emphasis in the passage. 
earlier, those, those distinctions are clear. For instance, in verse number 3, it calls it the holiest of all. Then in verse number 8, it says that the way to the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. And I take that to mean that the sacrifice of Christ had not yet been made, and that's what would open up the whole sanctuary to those who believe. Uh, that, that's what permits the access. So it seems to me that verse number 12 is purposeful to say holy place instead of holiest of all. But the question is why? Why does it say that? Maybe, maybe there isn't a significance that, that holy place, what the author really means. I, he means that to stand for the most holy place. But that doesn't really seem to be logical because of the obvious distinctions that are made in the rest of the passage. So I believe that holy place, uh, it says holy place because the veil that stood for the body of Christ is now removed. That when Christ was sacrificed, the veil was torn apart. You remember, mysteriously, at the crucifixion of Christ, that veil that separated these two compartments in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom by the hand of God. And so when Christ's physical body was torn in the crucifixion, so was this picture of his body torn in two. Now, the way is manifest when before it wasn't. So Christ then entered with his own blood. The veil has already been torn away, and so there is no separation of compartments. So in type, this one long structure is now one piece, one compartment, and the way to God is no longer restricted to the Old Testament priest, but all who have faith in Christ may come into the presence of God. We all enter through faith in Christ, and so we have all been made priests unto God. Now maybe I see something that's not here, but I've long maintained there isn't anything accidental in the scriptures. We, we might not recognize the subtleties, and we may not understand all the reasons of Things that are written in scripture. But that doesn't mean they don't have significance. And it doesn't mean that there's no reason for the way that God states this in particular. It's up to us to study the word and find out and reason out these different meanings if, we, if, if at all possible to do. So the incarnation then was necessary to provide the invisible God with a body that can die. Now there are several angles that we can consider uh, concerning that necessity, but we don't have time to discuss that in this lesson. But as it pertains to access to the mercy seat, the body of Christ is a necessity. Now, secondly, we note that we approach God through the blood of Christ. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9, Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. That is, he would go in, he would put the loaves of bread on the table of showbread. He would go in and he would light the lampstand. He would go in and he would put incense on the altar and do all of those things. That happens on a daily basis. But into the second, verse 7, but into the second went the high priest alone once every year. And listen, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. So the priest cannot get into that second compartment without blood. Well, the picture that that's seen here is very close to what we've already talked about, that is the body of Christ, because the blood stands for death. The body is dead. 
when the blood is, is shed. Now, on a couple of occasions, we've discussed that, that the primary inference of blood is death. Life is in the blood, the scripture says. And so when blood is taken, that means the sacrifice is dead. But from this, we're not to assume uh, by anything that's done with Christ's blood in the tabernacle or in the tabernacle in heaven, the, the heavenly sanctuary, that there is anything mystical about the blood of Christ. We've, we've talked about it. It's not divine blood, meaning the blood of God. It's the blood of the man. It's the blood of the human, Jesus. And so when the priest brought in the blood, the purpose is to show an animal has been killed. And when we see Christ's blood mentioned in the scripture, that's to show us that the incarnate Son of God was really dead. That he was killed. That human man, Jesus, was killed and he is dead. So in speaking in figures and the symbols, the literal carrying of human blood into heaven does not stand as a necessary component of redemption. Now, I say that very carefully because from that people draw wrong conclusions. And they'll say, oh, well, you're teaching that the blood of Christ is not necessary. We don't really need that. We can do away with the blood. But we're not teaching that at all. We strongly deny that anything could be true, such could be true. We definitely believe the blood of Jesus Christ must be shed, that it's necessary for the sacrifice to be effectual. In fact, this is the proof that God requires of the death of his son, and that is the blood has been shed. Now, if that's not necessary, then some people will say, well, if you want to show his dead, why don't they so he show he's dead? Why don't they just cut off his head? And why don't they take an animal's head into the into the Holy of Holies? Or if they want to show that he's dead, why don't they cut out his heart and bring the heart into the Holy of Holies? But God never required that. He never required the head of an animal, never required the, the heart of an animal. He says, bring the blood to the mercy seat and sprinkle it. And so that's the type. And Christ's blood must be shed. His blood is the only part that stands good for atonement. So if you wonder about this, you say, well, could Christ have died from blunt force trauma to his head? I mean, they did beat him. They, they mercilessly beat him. So could he have died that way? Would that be sufficient? Could Christ have died from a lightning strike? Somebody might say, well, could he have been strangled? Well, in fact, that would be impossible because the scriptures are very clear about that. Uh, not, you, can't, you can't kill the sacrificial animal by strangulation. Blood is the requirement. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So to say that the blood stands for death, we're not somehow absconding to a liberal view and, and, and taking up our side with theological liberals. No, we stand exactly where we've always stood. And that is with the necessity of a blood atonement. Well, to drill down in the symbolism, the, the, the blood was brought into the holy place and sprinkled on the mercy seat. And this, this part I didn't mention last time, but you should look at 1 John 2 to make connections. There in 1 John 2, in verse 2, it says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is a form of the same word that's translated mercy seat in Hebrews 9, verse 5. So that mercy seat, that's the place of satisfaction. That's what propitiation is. It's satisfaction to God for our sins. And so what this tells us is that Christ himself is the mercy seat. 
that he made himself a mercy seat to satisfy God. And the law is not chargeable to us because God is satisfied. Well, there are a lot of other doctrines that are involved in that. Uh, we could reach into the doctrine of imputation and speak of that. But as the author of Hebrews said, we can't speak particularly of that right now. We can't speak on that subject. But we're talking about the blood. We're talking about the mercy seat. The priest brought in the blood, and with his finger, he sprinkled the blood seven times. Beneath the mercy seat is hidden away and out of view the tablets of the law. They're put there as Moses was told to do. And so that law in the ark beneath the mercy seat, that is not incidental that it's done. There's a very definite purpose in it. The law is the foundation of justice. The law does one of two things. Either it condemns or it exonerates. Now for us as sinners, it's, it's the condemnation of the sinner. The law condemns us. But because of Christ's perfection and satisfying God's law for us, the law then becomes our exoneration. We're exonerated because of our faith in Christ and his righteousness stands good for us. And so because Christ in his perfect life was exonerated by the law, living every part of the law perfectly, it also proves that because we are in Christ through our faith in him, that we are justified before God. We, we are also exonerated by that law. And the lid covers up this, the law. The law is hidden because blood has been applied on the mercy seat. That's out of the view of God. Now, the importance of that, of course, is that, that the mercy seat on top of the law hides it from God's view. And the law would continue to condemn if it's not for that mercy seat where the blood has been applied. So all that God sees when he sees us as believers in Christ is what Christ did for us. That's all that he sees. He doesn't see any sin. He sees us in Christ. So we would never want to come to God with our efforts. To come to God that way would be a death sentence. We don't want to come with sacraments. We don't want to come with penance. We don't want to come with any additions to the work of Christ. Because if we do, that invites God to inspect us. God would start to look at us. What did you bring? What are, what are you showing for yourself? But God does not look at us. He looks to Christ. And Christ says... Why would you want to bring anything? I've got this. I've got this handled. You don't need to bring anything. Now, I don't want to be irreverent about this, but sometimes, you know, I, I think uh, all I ever needed to know, I learned from Judge Judy, that um, sometimes, you know, if you're watching her, a person comes into her courtroom and they'll try to help her make her decision. And uh, she's about to rule in the person's favor and the person thinks, well, what I need to do is just add one more comment. I need to add one more thing. I need to volunteer some more information, information that they're not asked. And Judge Judy will say, keep your mouth shut. Does it look like I need your help? I, I'm doing this. And you'll say, you know, she usually says something like, they keep me here because I'm smart, not because I'm beautiful, something like that. But sometimes people get convicted because they say one word too much. And so I can tell you that attempting to exonerate yourself with God is one word too much. That will kill you. So keep your stuff off the mercy seat because all that does is expose you to the wrath of God. Well, continuing, there, there's another beautiful picture of the sufficiency of Christ's blood. That his blood is also protection. 
The law will rise to bite us. If there's nothing that stands between us and the law, if there's nothing that stands between us and God's judgment through the law, then you are doomed. The law is Hercules, your Tom Thumb. You don't want him to get into the ring with Hercules. So the blood protects us from this giant that would crush us. Now this picture of protection is graphically displayed in another of Israel's great sacrifices. It's not one that's done on the Day of Atonement, but one that's made earlier in the year. This is not in the seventh month, but this is in the first month. And this is when Israel began its year with sacrifice. On the 14th day of the first month, the Passover sacrifice was made. And as you know, that commemorated the 10th plague on Egypt, which was the death of the firstborn. Now, that's what we would normally say, that, that, that that's the death of the firstborn. When actually, we could look at it another way. We could say that it's the protection of the firstborn. It's the protection because those who have the blood applied, uh, that house is protected from the death angel that would kill that firstborn. So the blood of Christ then becomes protection for us. Now, you know all of that story, but let, let's just review it a little bit. Let's go to Exodus chapter 11, and we'll refresh ourselves a bit uh, on this. We, we tend to think that the nine plagues on Egypt were unsuccessful. God was trying to free his people, but nine plagues are unsuccessful, and it took the tenth plague for God to finally get it right and then convince uh, Pharaoh to let Israel go. Now, unfortunately, that would be an Arminian telling of the story. When the truth is that God was successful with those first nine plagues because he accomplished exactly what he wanted to do. He defeated every perceived Egyptian god before he delivered the crushing blow. Now, along the way, in the exercise of the plagues, you remember, the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people go. So God hardened Pharaoh, and Pharaoh would not let them go until they got to the tenth plague. Now you think about that, and, and can you imagine what, had hap- what would have happened if God, or, or if Pharaoh rather, had let Israel go on plague number two? Or he let them go on plague number three, or number four, or number six? Well, if he had, you wouldn't have a, peace, uh, uh, a Passover feast. What you would have, that is of a lamb, but rather you would have a feast of frogs. Or you'd have a feast of lice or a feast of flies, or a feast of boils. There's no Passover lamb. So you think God's unjust that he, that he hardened Pharaoh's heart? Do we, do we forget what Romans 9:17 says? For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. So no, God did not intend that Pharaoh would let Israel go until he had crushed them and all their gods. And so he beat Pharaoh down in every conceivable way to show his power. And then, not only did God lead Israel out, but he led Pharaoh out. He led Pharaoh's army out and destroyed them in the Red Sea. And then Israel would never have to worry about Pharaoh bothering them again. Well, after nine plagues, it was time for the worst to fall on Egypt, God would demonstrate deliverance by showing that he was Israel's salvation. So we look in Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, 
And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne. Even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill. And all the firstborn of beast. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Such as there was none like it. Nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue. Against man or beast. That ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Now, if you go down to chapter 12, verse number 1, Exodus 12, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, According to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall you make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the house wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat, eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with its legs and the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth of it until the morning, ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, with your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord." And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. So Israel was to take blood. They were to strike it on the sides of the door, and on the lintel of the doors of their houses. Now, in case you didn't know, the lintel is the support beam above the door. It holds the weight of the house as it passes over, the, uh, passes over that opening of the door, and the doorposts serve as pillars for it. Now, think about that, the place where the blood is applied, and see if you can figure out some significance to placing it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the house. And so the blood then is the protection from the death angel. And Israel must be under the blood. Their houses must be under the blood to receive that protection. If not, then the firstborn in the house would die. Now to keep the analogy alive, Arminians would peek out the door and they would strike at the death angel with a broom handle. And then they would busily smear blood on every door on seven continents And then they still say, that's not going to work unless we peek out the door and fight a little bit against it uh, on their own. But that doesn't work. You crack open the door and there is no protection. 
Well, you and I, we believe that. We're not going to help Jesus do anything. So we'll certainly not accept any criticism that we don't think blood is important. No, we, we believe we must plead nothing but the blood. And we dare not plead any additions to the blood because only the blood is our protection. That's our only hope to be defended against the law. So that's the approach of worship. The priest must have blood to take in with him. And he dared not go in without it. Well, we go on to our second observation. And this is the attitude of worship. And now our attention is drawn to the construction of the mercy seat. Attitude. Um, the word attitude has several meanings. It could mean your disposition to act in a certain way. The attitude of worship could be the respect that you have when you come into the service. What is your disposition towards God? What did you expect when you came here? That can be your attitude. The mental frame of mind can be described as your attitude of worship and affects the way that you worship. But when I say attitude here, that's not the meaning that I use. But attitude can also respect the position. For, for example, if, if you were a pilot, the position of your airplane in respect to the horizon and the direction that you're traveling is called the attitude of the airplane. Well, so what does that have to do with the mercy seat? Well, it's another fascinating part of its construction. And I want to show you a picture again uh, of the front of the mercy seat. And here is the priest who's set there ready to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And if you'll take your Bibles and look back at Hebrews 9, verses 3 through 5, we'll read a little bit about this. It says there, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And then this part, verse number five, And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. So there are these two angelic creatures that are on the mercy seat. These are cherubs made to overlook this mercy seat. Now the author says, I don't have time to explain all that to you, but I do, and I will, only not today. I'm not going to explain all of that today. Thankfully, we have more Sunday afternoons. But this mercy seat that, that God had them make was astounding. And there's just no wonder that Israel had such hope in it. But if they weren't careful, these kinds of things took on a superstitious meaning, almost a magical meaning. I mean, the workmanship of it is just fabulous. And this is just another, another testimony to the details and how that God is worthy of our very best. So, you know, if you, if you ask me, do things like basketball goals in a, in a sanctuary bother me? The answer is yes, they do. And does frayed carpet on the, on the platform, does that bother me? Yes, it does. Because I think that what we should do for God is our very best. We ought to give God our very best. I understand, you know, we, we can't always afford to do that. I mean, I think things like, you know, the gate outside that we had on the side of the building. I thought, you know, that, that doesn't look very good. That's not nearly our best. And so, you know, Richard and a few others uh, fixed that for us and makes it, made it look a lot better. We, we've got to present a, a, a good place where, where we worship. It ought to be attractive, I believe. But looking at, at, the, at the tabernacle, this is so meticulously done. Such artisanship, such, such, uh, such 
just ability is in this that God gave them. You couldn't find more precisely, finely crafted furnishings anywhere. And the Ark of the Covenant was the crescendo of everything that's made in the tabernacle. Because this is where God would meet them at the mercy seat. Now, fortunately, I don't have time to go on, and I don't want to rush it. And I have plenty that I'd like to say about these cherubs. They're very, it's a very interesting thing to study this in, in the Bible, about these cherubs. And so we're going to look at that, and we'll take up the, the study of it uh, again next week. The author of Hebrews says, I can't speak particularly about that right now. And so he just glided on past this part to get where he was going. But we're not going to do that. We need to slow it down because we're not Hebrews. We don't already understand all of these things. And so we need to take a look at why the, the scriptures had them do this. And what's the Bible talking about with those cherubs, the mercy seat, and all those parts that they constructed. So we're going to go back to the Old Testament again, and we're going to look at it. We're going to put the pieces of this puzzle together and see how it reveals more and more of the wonderful works of Jesus Christ. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.